As we record this podcast, the slaughter in Gaza has been taking place for almost four months. It's hard to express the horror. Sometimes it feels like we've run out of words to describe the death and devastation that's being wreaked on Palestinian people. That genocide is being carried out by a state that claims to be a home and a safe haven for all Jews, and which pounces on every criticism as evidence of anti-Semitism. And that's why today we've brought together five Jewish progressives to speak out against the horror. All of us, including we presenters, stand for the liberation of Palestine, and we all declare, not in our name. Israel and its supporters have always used the slur of anti-Semitism against progressive critics. But the way the accusation is being weaponized, as is happening now, is a very dangerous step. It cheapens and distorts the term. If all critics of Israel are anti-Semites, then there's no special need to mobilise against the real threat to Jews and others to be found in the growing ranks of the far right. It's worth quoting Bernie Steinberg, the former director of Harvard Hillel, the centre of Jewish life at Harvard University, and certainly no radical. He said, I know what anti-Semitism looks like, and I do not take the issue of violence against Jews lightly. I have monitored with vigilance the kinds of speech that Israel-aligned parties are calling anti-Semitic, and it simply does not pass the sniff test. Let me speak plainly. It is not anti-Semitic to demand justice for all Palestinians living in their ancestral lands. This discussion takes that sentiment as its starting point. But before we begin, I'd like to note that while this episode features Jewish voices for Palestine, the Sound of Solidarity has, of course, always given a platform to Palestinian voices. If you check out our library, you can hear from the likes of Ahmed Abadla, Jamal Nabulsi and Fahad Ali. And we will talk with Palestinian activists again in the months to come. You're listening to The Sound of Solidarity, brought to you by Solidarity. We're a revolutionary socialist group in Australia. And if you'd like to find out more about us, our website is Solidarity. I'm David Glanz and I'm recording this episode on unceded Wurundjeri land in Narm or Melbourne. And I'm Tommy Gadir, also on Wurundjeri land. And to introduce our guests today, we're joined by Melanie Lazaro, John Abel and Nachshon Amir. Welcome all. First up, maybe you can tell us something about your Jewish identity and if you have a connection to Israel, what that is. Maybe we'll start with you, John. Well, I I was born in Poland well after the Second World War, and my mother survived uh, Nazi concentration camps and slave labor camps, and my father escaped to the Soviet Union. He was part of the Polish army and found himself in the East. And I lived uh, 100 kilometers from Auschwitz, actually, and interestingly enough, my mother's hometown is Oschwenschim, which in German is called Auschwitz. I grew up in a, a small city of about 60,000 people. There was a very vibrant Jewish community that before the Second World War, quite a large one actually, 40% of the population was Jewish. So the community was, the, the one that I grew up in, was a very mixed community. When I was a kid in the 50s, there would have been maybe 
100 to 200 Jewish families still living there, but a lot of them were leaving to various places, uh, including Israel and United States, not many to Australia, actually. My uncle went to Israel. He went in 1953 and was writing to my parents, basically, don't come. And the reason why he was saying don't come was two reasons. One was he thought the economic situation was pretty awful and also he was aware of what happened to the Palestinians. He was a doctor by training. So my parents didn't decide to go. And we came to Australia. I I knew nothing about Zionism when I was a kid. My parents were not Zionists. I recall the 67 walk when I was at school. A lot of my high school years were at Elwood High, which was at that time a school in the east of Melbourne with a high Jewish population of children of mainly people who came to Australia after the Second World War. They showed this great enthusiasm for Israel. I I said nothing, but I was just listening and I thought, hmm. This, this speech sounds like the speech that I have been aware of anti-Semites. It was just simply a reversal of anti-Semitism, basically. And they were correct, characterizing Arabs, but in similar terms, in racist, dehumanizing terms, and that repelled me. Thanks for that, John. How about you, Melanie? Do you want to tell us a bit about your connection to Judaism and to Israel? Sure. I was born to a very religious Jewish family in South Africa. They came from Latvia and Lithuania um, through London and settled in Johannesburg. It was made quite clear to me that I was to be a Jew and that I was not to associate with non-Jews, even though they didn't send me to a Jewish school. But um, we said the prayers, the Friday night prayers. We did did the, my father went to the synagogue only on religious holidays, but he was very involved in the Hebrew Order of David and he was very staunchly pro-Israeli and made it quite clear that he expected his children to follow. Uh, My brother, it was in the 60s when ideas were fluent, and my brother once said to them that he was an atheist, and my father said that no child of his is an atheist, and he would chuck out children who were. So I decided that I would not let my thoughts be known to my parents. I would become inward and silent and um, do what I needed to do on my own. Then in the 60s, when it became necessary or there was a a leadership and an uprising and an uprising in South Africa with many, many um, vocal Jewish leaders of the anti-apartheid movement, I felt very comfortable in being um, both anti-apartheid in South Africa and and, um, began questioning, but not deeply, questioning my Zionist and Jewish origins. It wasn't soon before all of the Jewish spokespeople in South Africa, Ruth First, um, Ronnie Catherells, who had an interview in our uh, newspaper, The Socialist Worker in Britain, um, who who became uh, one of the leaders of the ANC, 
gave a, a leadership to anyone who wanted to question and to support Palestine. Later on, I started reading. I was an atheist, an atheist Jew, and I think there are a lot of atheist Jews. And I still hold my Jewish heritage because it's a long history of persecution. So I am both atheist, Jewish, and a fighter. Thanks, Melanie. Um, Nachshon, did you want to tell us a bit about yourself? Uh, yes, I was born and raised in Israel in a very Zionist family, a religious Zionist family. I was born in a kibbutz. Yeah, I grew up in this environment of or learning that this is our land, historically and, and even promised land from God. Uh, there are other people here which hates us and don't want us to be here, and we have to keep ourselves from them. We called them Arabs. We didn't call them Palestinians by then. I was proudly prepared myself to join the army and be a fighter and be even a leader, so I naturally did this, and I joined the army, and I became a combat officer, and I served in all these places, in Lebanon, the Golan Heights, the Gaza Strip, and all the towns in in the West Bank. And by then, as an Israeli, how I grew up is like every child in Israel grow up. So you, it's not that there's any division in Israel. So this is all you know. You don't hear anything else. So this is, that was my reality. I couldn't even doubt it. I couldn't have any chance to see anything else. Yeah, so even when I've, I've been in this place and places and did this, I said, not nice things, I thought, well, we have to do it. That's what we have to do. So these people that are going to their houses in the middle of the night, they're either terrorists or they're going to be terrorists. They could be in my parents' age and they didn't do anything. We just got into the houses just to... I would say terrorize them. There was no other aim, just to show them who the boss is and keep their head down. I can tell about many other stories, but this is not the place to do it. But that was my, my army service. And just many years later, I started to doubt the whole thing. And I think it's another question that we are going to ask, so I'll tell about it later. Anyway, about my my Jewish identity, it was not... In Israel, you don't have it because as Israel, Jewish Israel, it's not something on the table. It's very obvious. So I can't tell much about my Jewish identity except for I was religious, what was obvious. But then later on, it's just the, my being Israeli that my Judaism. Yeah, thanks, Nachshon. And as you indicated, perhaps we'll move on now to talk about how each of us and Tommy and myself can chip in if we want broke with Zionism because we come from different backgrounds, different generations, uh, different countries as migrants, but we're all united in fundamental opposition to Zionism and the state of Israel. And although the numbers inside the Jewish community opposing Zionism have increased, and we can talk about that a little bit more later, we're still in a minority. So it's still important to explain to ourselves and to other people how we broke with Zionism. So maybe, Nachshan, I'll come back to you to continue your story. Yeah, so I'm coming back to my, my, my childhood. So my father took me a couple of times to march on the hills of 
the West Bank, chanting, uh, we called it Yehuda Veshomron. We're chanting, this is our land, this is our land. That's how I grew up. But then after serving, I was in the army for five years because I was an officer. And I remember, I can't exactly put my finger when the change came. It, it just, it's a very long journey for me. But I remember after the army, I said, no, this part of the world will never be ours because there's too, too many Arabs here. So it can't be Israel. That's what I thought. And then I thought, oh, I must stop thinking about it. It's not going gonna, it's, it's gonna to end good. Or, or, or I, somehow I put myself out of any politics. I stopped in some stage to read papers and to listen to, to, to um, news. I thought about myself. It's very selfish. I know. I thought I'm going to have my life, my family, my friends. And for many, many years, and in Israel, it, it's not compulsory to vote in the election. So I didn't vote for, I think, 12 or 13 years. So I can't even, I hardly remember the second intifada. Hardly remember the, the war in Lebanon in 2006. I hardly remember the living of living so-called Gaza Strip. I just didn't care, sorry. Um, but that's what made me probably made, made, enable me to clear my mind and get new ideas to to my head and we moved first time to Australia in 2009 and then I discovered I realized oh there's a schools here that my daughters go to with Hindus and Muslims and Christians this is normal why in Israel we have Jewish school and Arab school actually why do we have Jewish settlements and Arab settlements because in Brunswick it's not Christian suburb that you people tell no no Jewish you're not coming here it's it's a Christian and that's how it is in Israel and you grow up in this environment it's very normal and so I started to learn here what is a normal country in a way and yeah this it took me a couple of more years we came back we went back to Israel and I started to get into the refugees action and I, then I learned about humanity and, and, and about activism. By this time I started to, to doubt all the myth and, and, and stories that I learned about Zionism when I was a child and I discovered that everything is, well, not everything, but generally the whole story is very, very different. We are not the good guys, we are the bad guys actually from beginning of the Zionism. It took me long years, it's not like in, in a moment. This is the way. So it's, it's a long journey that started in cleaning, clearing my mind and a lot of learning and reading and watching um, lectures of people like Professor Ilan Pape or, or, or this kind of historian that facing the truth and not telling the old Zionist stories. Melanie, perhaps we can turn to you next. Yes, I also remember in the Six-Day War um, being so tied to my parents and that generation of Cyril Dean was a Jewish suburb. It had its own <coughs> shul, it had its own um, place where we went to worship. We, um, I didn't go to a Jewish school, but even the local school was very Jewish. But when the Six-Day War occurred, we were all given the little white box with the um, blue mug and David, the Star of David on it, and I went round the neighbourhood collecting for the war. There was no question, but 
South Africa was such an intricately complex place because at the same time as that there were a lot of Jewish people in the anti-apartheid movement and some who had broken with Zionism. There were people in jail for fighting apartheid who I also looked up to. And the complexity of life, being Jewish, having parents who were both explicitly wanting to obey and to be good Jews, also weren't the worst racists in South Africa. They also, they exploited having servants. And to my shame, yes, we had servants, but they also didn't want that situation. So they hung all over the place. I think that gave me a break in my consciousness to question things around me. At the same time, there was other things happening in South Africa intersecting with what was happening in Israel. There was Sharpville. Uh, when I was seven years old, I was at primary school and the first time a big protest against the pass laws, a segmented group like the Palestinians who are segmented in Israel stood up and said, we don't want to be segmented, we want to have our rights. About 150 of them were shot and it infiltrated our school children's brains. We just thought this is wrong, there's something wrong about the world, there's something wrong about segregation, there's something wrong about the way things are done and that also intersected with how I thought about being Jewish and the question of Israel on a very simplistic level because I was very young. It was only when I went to university and it was only when I started, became involved in the movements fighting, fighting for rights that um, I started questioning on a deep level what I needed to be as a human and as a socialist and together with other with other people. So my Judaism both contributed to that because I, I think Judaism and Zionism are totally separate because Jews have been have been oppressed for a very long time. But um Zionism is certainly not the answer. Jews should be able to live anywhere in the world with the right to be whatever they want and not be contained in a, a little place that they've stolen from any from another segment of the population. John, you were born and grew up in Poland after the Holocaust, and the Holocaust is has been used as the largest single argument for the Zionist movement. Yet you drew different conclusions. So how did that come about? I, I was very aware of, of what happened to my extended family and to my mother, of course. Most of my extended family, probably 96% of them, were murdered by the Nazis. So from a very young age, I was very aware of of the Holocaust. My mother talked to me a little bit about the experiences uh, that she underwent. She talked to me in, in a way that I could understand as, as a child. My father was a fighter against fascism in his own way in the 1930s. He was a huge soccer enthusiast as well as a good player and also an, a very good amateur boxer. So there were anti-Semitic uh, people in Poland during that period. And my father actually was imprisoned for about three months when he went to a, a meeting 
of these anti-Semites and fired a pistol in, into the ceiling to disperse the meeting. My mother was, was a real skeptic and an agnostic, and she always used to say, uh, well, you know, if, if God existed, how come this happened to me and my family? My father was a kind of a, what I would regard as an instinctive existentialist. I was repelled by the racism of the kids that I went to school with. And, I, and when I started my university studies, I think I came across some of journal articles by Isaac Deutsch. I, uh, I, I think I was expelled from a religious class uh, at Melbourne High because I asked the religious teacher uh, within a couple of weeks, uh, can you provide any proof for God? You know? and he said, well, I don't want you here. Just get out. So I was quite fortunate. It was great. I had two periods every week in the library where I could do anything I liked. So I, I accessed, I think, New Left Review and Me Engine. In the New Left Review, I accessed, uh, I, I read Isaac Deutsch's interview on the 67 war. I was kind of blown away by it because Deutsch's analysis was excellent and it's still very valid today. And after that, I became involved in the anti-Vietnam War movement as a draft resistant and so on. And I think it was in 1970 uh, or maybe 71 that I met people like Ali Kazak, who was a Palestinian here, with the PLO. Okay, thanks for that. I mean, my story is not as exotic or interesting as, as the others. Uh, my family moved from Poland, Russian Empire in the in the 1880s, the 1890s, fleeing from the pogroms. So I was third generation English. I think the critical thing in terms of my breaking from Zionism, I think there were two factors. The first was when I was young, we moved to a country town and there was no Jewish community. So although we went back up to London and to bar mitzvahs and weddings and funerals, there was no day-to-day -day interconnection with the Jewish community and therefore there was no particular pressure on me to become a Zionist. My mother actually told me that she wasn't a Zionist but she was never very vocal about it and my father was a soft Zionist in the same way he was a, a sentimental Jew he wanted us to be part of the community and go through permitsva and so on. So I think the fact that I grew up away from the Jewish community was one factor the, but the critical thing was going to university and beginning to move to the left on a whole range of issues. And the single most important thing was is that the radicals at the university I went to, when I blurted out all sorts of very unformed and uninformed views on all sorts of things, didn't just expel me from the conversation. They sat me down and they talked to me and they patiently explained. And I think that was absolutely critical. If they'd simply brushed me aside as, a, as an idiot I probably would have remained an idiot and probably would have remained a, a soft Zionist idiot, but they were prepared to talk to me and explain to me. And I think that's a very important lesson, that we shouldn't assume that anybody is unwinnable. And, and as I became increasingly identified as a revolutionary socialist, then my position against Zionism was sort of clearly part of the package deal. Tammy, did you have anything you wanted to add? Yes, yeah, so my background is that my grandparents on one side survived Stalin's gulags because they escaped Poland hoping to get to their Soviet utopia and then they got arrested on arrival uh, on the other side of the border. 
uh, not for being Jews, but for being Polish, actually, for being capitalists, allegedly, even though they were actually seeking out, they were, they were communists. My grandparents on my other side survived Hitler's camps. They were younger and they, didn't, they weren't at an age that they were capable of, of escaping. And my parents, you know, were born into families that directly resulted from those experiences. And I won't recount the whole story, but they ended up in Israel, both of them at different times. They met each other in the IDF, as many people who become partners do in Israel. You know, they people joke that it's a basically the national matchmaking service, as well as being the brutal um, institution that it is. So, you know, there's this kind of fundamental existential element for me where that institution resulted in me. My first language was was Hebrew uh, at home, even though I was born in Australia. The reason my parents moved to Australia was because my dad was working for one of the Zionist, for the Zionist agency. And there was a role in the 70s for a lot of people to go over to Jews in the diaspora and convince them to uh, move to Israel and they had the choice between Nashville or Sydney. So my life could have been quite different if I'd been born in Nashville, Tennessee, but I was born in Sydney, Australia because that was the choice they made. And they spoke Hebrew to me at home and then I obviously learned English at school. But it was a fundamental part of my upbringing, my Israeli culture, Jewish by default, a bit like what Nachshon described, but not necessarily much by practice. We were, we were secular in our Jewish practices. But my father was always a very critical voice and he was involved in some key conflicts um, when he was in the army during that period. So he saw things that happened and had a, um, I'd say, a a grip on reality that perhaps some of the diaspora Jews who were quite removed from that history did not have. I distinctly remember family dinners where he would be a vocal critic of what the Israeli state was doing at any given moment and the other Jewish people at the table would call him crazy they would just turn it into ad hominem attacks and say why would we ever listen to anything you say this doesn't make any sense you're insane there was never any actual argument about the critic the substance of the criticisms that he made it was always you're insane why would we listen to you and that was what happened to anybody who tried to criticize uh, what was happening there in the company of, of other jews who were raised to be unquestioningly Zionist for various reasons. So I was in that environment with a questioning family, but where we were always the ones who were told that we were crazy. My brother bought a bunch of books by Jewish historians who were also questioning. So I was also surrounded by, you know, a sibling who was actively searching and seeking answers to the concerning things that we were seeing in the media, on the news, and trying to reconcile that with the constant total propaganda that you receive when you are a Jew raised in the diaspora and told that the the thing you must do as well as your prayers is sing songs about Israel, donate to the blue box, because that's charitable, and support Israel unquestioningly. So I was fortunate to be in that environment, but it was not without its challenges and I was constantly fighting people around me in the Jewish community from a very early stage. Even when I wasn't sort of overtly an anti-Zionist, I hadn't had a fully formed position yet, but I, even the act of questioning some key humanitarian things uh, led to a great deal of vitriol and aggression. And I learned very quickly that I either have to learn the arguments very well 
or I have to keep my mouth shut because it's very easy to get shouted down, as many of us will know. There are people who hope against hope that Jewish citizens within Israel will revolt against the slaughter and the oppression carried out by their government. Nachshon, obviously, you've lived in Israel. What are your thoughts about that kind of possibility? Well, if you talk about revolt against the, the genocide that's happening now in Gaza, I don't, sorry, I don't have much hope. I am following closely with what's going on in Israel. A lot of my friends, even even my friends, like most of them call themselves uh, leftist Zionist or progressive Zionist. Uh, there's a wall-to-wall, I'd say, support of what's going on in, uh, in Gaza. The only people that are not supporting it is people that define themselves anti-Zionist because they understand the root of the whole things. There won't, won't be any opposition or real opposition unless, or, or the only reason that uh, people would start opposing will be uh, the number of casualties in, in Gaza. So like in Lebanon, they suffered and suffered and suffered and said, enough, we lost enough, it doesn't work. But it won't be because of uh, moral reason, but because of the circumstances. It, it won't come from within Israel, the stopping or the revolting for this. It's, it should be the, the world, the US probably. Melanie, have you got any thoughts on this? Uh, I definitely think that the pressure has to come from the international community. And I'm quite heartened by the ongoing marches week after week we've been seeing in Melbourne. And I follow, I'm a bit of a social media person, so all over the place, Seoul, even in Helsinki, everywhere. I know that they're just marches, but they do indicate a base level of opposition. So whether I don't think the marches on their own will stop what's going on in Palestine, but I do think that if the working class, the docks, those kind of things that stopped apartheid in Australia, if ships aren't loaded, if Israel is bitten by technology workers not prepared to work, or you know, the things that keep the Israel economy going, if that gets hit, I think we have some hope. And I think that we can bolster the union opposition to Israel by the, the marches that we're having, and they're interconnected. So I, I do hope well, I don't hope. It's a necessity that we continue our opposition to what's happening there. I know that I'll be there, and I know that everyone here probably will be too. John, any thoughts? I agree with Naxon uh, in a sense that I, from my reading of what's happening in Israel right now, and I, it seems to me that the type of indoctrination that occurs in Israel from very early age prevents large opposition from occurring. I think the Zionist establishment in Israel has control of the consciousness of the population to support the war crimes and the kind of war of annihilation that they are conducting. I agree with Melanie that the only way we can really affect what's happening right now is through massive demonstrations. But I would add to that a massive boycott. I think what we've got to do is expand the BDS campaign to something really, really huge. 
like what happened against South Africa, and even perhaps bigger. I think the ruling classes of the ruling elites right now, particularly in Western countries, are, are supporting Israel. They're supporting ethnic cleansing and this genocide. So it's left to the masses and the people who are opposed to um, try to change this situation. That's the only hope I can see. Yeah, I tend to agree with everybody here that the solution will not come from inside Israel from the working class. The reality is Israeli workers are absolutely embedded into the colonial settler project. They're embedded into the process of the seizure of land, the demolition of buildings. And I'm not talking about Gaza. I'm talking about the normal process of Zionist expansion, particularly into the West Bank and, and East Jerusalem. Jewish workers get massively higher wages than Palestinian workers. They have a higher standard of living. And their so-called union organization, the Histadrut, has always been actually an element of colonial settler expansion. It, it helped establish the Haganah military operation, which was used against the Palestinians. From early on, it wasn't about creating unity between Jewish and Palestinian workers. It was about driving Palestinians out of the emerging Zionist economy literally smashing Palestinian stalls in marketplaces and making sure that the Palestinians, particularly after 1967 and even more so after the first intifada, were marginalised from the economy. So, yes, there will be protests in Israel from time to time, but there won't be protests against Zionism. And the handfuls of people who take principled positions is absolutely minute. So, yes, I think we have to look to our activity as demonstrators and workers in particularly in the imperialist countries but around the world but I also think we should take heart from the possibility of revolt amongst the Arab masses in the Middle East in a sense you can see a, you get a taste of that when you see the massive support for the Houthis uh, when they stand up against imperialism gigantic demonstrations in Sana'a in Yemen where people unite behind the Houthis because for once they're actually standing up to Israel. And that actually shows how the Egyptian regime, the Jordanian regime, all the others, they're all talk and absolutely no action. And therefore there is the potential for, I think, revolt within Egypt and Jordan and Lebanon, not just for Palestine, but against the dictatorships that blight their lives. And I think that, that is the fundamental hope we, we can be part of the struggle in Australia, in America, in Britain, wherever, in Helsinki. We can be part of the struggle, but I think it will be the uprising of the Arab masses which will play a definitive role. The number of Jews speaking out for Palestine is unprecedented in our lifetimes. In the US, for instance, thousands of young Jews have been protesting the horrors in Gaza. In Australia, we have the Loud Jew Collective in Melbourne and the Tzedek Collective and Jews Against the Occupation in Sydney. Why do you think that things have changed like this for the better? Possibly it's a generation, um, a, a young generation of people are questioning what actually is occurring. 
I think the horror is very apparent. All you have to do is, you don't actually have to read much, all you have to do is, I suppose, watch the news and you can you can see some of the photographs and filming and if you have any form of human compassion and empathy you will oppose this slaughter and I, I just want to add that what repelled me also on a very visceral level when I was a teenager was when I saw the militarist triumphalism of the Israeli military and that kind of, that repelled me because I thought, mm, who are they fighting? And then I started exploring because I didn't believe the propaganda. And maybe that this is what the young, gener young people are also uh, questioning. Perhaps the um, Zionist narrative is not as strong amongst that generation as it was amongst our generations. Yeah, I think I have to take myself back to South Africa, the 60s. We did not believe in a fit that it would be possible to get rid of an apartheid government. There is no way that the general population and even the black population then believed it would be possible to have the kind of revolution that overturned these, the white South African government, even if it didn't consolidate now into a real classless society. It did turn everybody's minds that it is possible and that ordinary people can do such an incredible thing, go onto the streets and change. And I do see that in the Middle East. There's Lebanon, there's actually um, Morocco, there's a lot of places that um, have a bulk of ordinary working class creating things, doing work and being, being horrified. And it does give me hope. I know that other people may be sceptical, but to see the numbers and numbers of people that I, I have confidence can actually change into something more substantial, like um, strikes and putting a spoke in the system to change the, uh, to change so much that Palestine can be free and that there can be one entity that is not Israel but which is a new system where people live together and work. I have that hope and optimism. I think the change is very obvious and measurable and it's relative to the last 30 or 40 years, it's massive. I think anti-Zionist Jews are still clearly a minority. We wouldn't pretend otherwise. And I think the Australian community, Jewish community is probably more isolated and more backward. But in the United States, there's a sea change. There are opinion polls carried out which show that Jews under the age of 40, for instance, about a third would describe Israel as an apartheid state and another substantial chunk would say, no, I wouldn't agree with that, but I don't think it's anti-Semitic to say it. I think the Zionists are losing the battle, and I think it is the fact that the horror becomes greater and greater, and we were, especially those of us of the older generation, we were brought up on the fairy tale that Israel was a land uh, that was a land of safety for Jews, uh, a bastion of civilization, a bastion of democracy and decency. Well, it's palpably obvious that that's not the case. 
And of course, the older generation tends to be stuck. But I think amongst younger Jews, there is a willingness now to challenge. Like I said, in the 70s, when I broke with Zionism, really breaking with Zionism was almost always part and parcel of becoming a revolutionary socialist. Today, we're surrounded by anti-Zionist Jews with all sorts of you know, mishmash of different progressive ideas. It's certainly not a prerequisite to become a revolutionary socialist to stand against Zionism today. So I think the Zionists are in the process of losing a generation. And whatever the outcome of this particular horror in Gaza, I don't know if they will get many of those people back. I think this is a long-term decline in the support for Israel. I wonder how many children in the future will go around with these little boxes collecting money. I think it'll be fewer and fewer in the West. I might just briefly add that the propaganda campaigns inflicted upon us by mainstream media, our politicians and the people who do the work of, of the ruling class makes it very challenging for people who haven't been exposed to the alternative perspective to navigate when they hear things like the Palestinians have a right to resist by whatever means necessary. And when I hear people come back at me when I'm arguing points like that, the only things they're capable of doing now are the talking points that are delivered to them, such as, well, it's much safer to be LGBTQ in Israel, or it's much safer in Israel they have a lot of diversity. It's, it's a very strange kind of twisting of familiar leftist politics to try to appeal to people's sensibilities to get them to say, oh, actually, Israel is a civilised place. It's, it's everywhere else that isn't. And as soon as you actually start to see the realities and, for example, when I go to Free Palestine rallies, and openly say that I'm a Jewish person who is supporting Palestinian justice, the only experience that I've had is people thanking me for being there. I have never experienced the kind of anti-Semitism that we are told is sort of everywhere in the air, which I'm not saying that there is no anti-Semitism. Of course there is anti-Semitism. But I think it's such a misdirected focus to say that people doing these sorts of campaigns are encouraging anti-Semitism. As, as I said at the beginning, anti-Semitism is rife in the far right and that's its origins and that's where it will always be. And it's such a distraction and a lie to say doing Palestinian resistance work is encouraging anti-Jewish sentiment. I just think that's simply not true. And it's sort of our role as anti-Zionist Jews to undo that and to be really familiar with the arguments and be able to tell people, actually, that's not correct and here are the reasons it's not correct. Um, but it's, it's a lot of work and <laughs> I guess that's why we're really grateful that we have groups to belong to that can help us make those arguments. So it's been really, really great to hear everybody contribute today. I think if you were handed at the microphone at the weekly Palestine Solidarity Rally. Um, it would be good to hear, maybe starting with Melanie, what your uh, message would be. Oh, I'd say take courage, keep, keep doing what you're doing, keep coming back. Uh, there is a world to win and there is a Palestine to win. So do it, keep coming, and we will always be there until we win. I would 
say keep up the struggle, keep up the demonstrations and keep up generally the momentum because I actually wrote something called The Critical uh, Mass is Getting Close. And I, I think we're kind of getting into this critical mass, which I experienced when I was uh, involved in the anti-Vietnam War movement. And I remember I was one of the first people who burnt his draft card. And at that stage, most people in Australia supported the war. And then the protests snowballed and the government here couldn't control it. They, try, they tried to arrest us, and you know, they did arrest us, and they were pursuing me and all this kind of stuff. But then it got too big, and I lost to Whitlam. <laughs> and Whitlam withdrew. If I'm going to speak to the Australian public, and that's how I see these rallies, although in the rallies they, they are they're converted, but I want to speak to the Australian public. A lot of the people are not familiar with the truth. Sorry, with the ABC and SBS and all the channels in the government are quite amplifying the, the, the Zionist propaganda. Sorry. I'd say to them, if I that grew up in this Zionist environment, into this indoctrination, in this imagined reality of myth, if I manage to, to overcome and learn the truth, it takes time, it takes psychological change for me. But for the for the common Australian it should be much easier. So you have to learn the truth. Who is the oppressor, who is the oppressed, who is the colonialist, who is the victim of the colonialism, and especially in Australia, when we hear for many years now, we acknowledge the atrocities and, and the First Nation people of this country. We have to do the parallels to Palestine and support the struggle of the Palestinians for justice and, and rights and freedom. And it's not by words. We have to be active in this. And like, like what happened in South Africa, I guess, that's the only way we, we could do it in Palestine and Israel. And we have to mobilize to this. And so through the public to the representative, that's the way we should go. And that's what I, what I would say if I have the microphone in, in, in the rallies. Okay, thanks, everybody. It's been a really interesting discussion. I know we'll all be back on the streets every Sunday so long as the bombing continues. Mm-hmm.